Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Hope you're well. Glad to be back and very happy to welcome back New York Times sports news reporter, Tarek Panja. Hi, Tarek. Hi, Owen. Nice to be with you again. Very nice to have you with us again. And um, we're going to be hearing a bit later on from Daniel Heal, who is a partner and global head of sport at Control Risks. We're going to be discussing some risk management and, and sports attitude towards it. Uh, and obviously how that will have changed over the past year. But about 12 months ago, Tarek, we had you on. I think it was the last time. It's very hard to get a sense of of time and the passage of time at the moment. But about 12 months ago, we had you on. And at that point, I think we were talking about Tokyo 2020 and Euro 2020 and uh, the imminent cancellation of both of those events, or the imminent postponement anyway, of those two events. Those are on the agenda again today, but um, we're hoping that both of them are still going to happen, but they are going to be happening in in quite heavily adapted form, we think. And I guess that's what we'll get onto just in the in, in the spirit of uh, of adaptability to to risk and uh, and and to real world events. Um, let's start with with the Olympics. I mean, you know, this time a year ago, the IOC have bought itself some time, and local organisers have bought themselves some time, not really having any clue uh, of about the course of the pandemic and and what we were going to see. It would now appear that we will definitely have an Olympic Games in Tokyo. It will be more or less a year to the day to uh, the originally scheduled date, but it's going to be quite different from any Olympic Games we've seen uh, in living memory. Yeah, uh, I guess a year ago, we were still grappling with this virus that we didn't really understand at all. And, you know, we're fearing for our own sort of um, health, wherever you are in the world. No one knew what was going on, as it, as it were. And then you have these these events, you know, overlaying all of that. We're at a point, I guess, today where there is a greater understanding of, of, of the virus itself, a vaccination program uh, that's starting to be rolled out around the world. Um, at different speeds, obviously, but that does show um, you know momentum and a, and a kind of positive direction of travel, at least for now. Um, mutations withstanding, I think you're right, we are going to have uh, uh, Tokyo Olympics, which must um, have the bean counters at the IOC, um, you know, a huge sigh of relief there. Uh, but it will, like you say, be very different. And it just seems like a case of let's get it done and then move on because... I guess for 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 the IOC and the sports um, that they fund, which is a large part of the world sporting body, and big organisations rely on, on on the on the Olympics for a lot of their funding, it, it simply couldn't not happen, right? It, this this thing needs to happen. It's going to be very different. The idea of overseas fans seems an impossibility, and that's one of the things, one of the beauties of previous Olympics. Remember in London, you know, everyone coming from all over the world here and, and celebrating their athletes and celebrating each other. It, it's always a good, good atmosphere. I don't think we'll see any of that. Um, as for the athletes as well, the word is that they're in, they do their event and they're out. There's no hanging around there either. Um, and from the media perspective as well, it's going to be very different. Smaller contingents and everything controlled. So this idea of 
freewheeling journalists around the um, um, Olympic stage, that, that, that's not going to happen. I think you have to provide a daily um, agenda for the organiser, exactly where you're going to be, um, and, and they're and they're going to go with that. And then I don't think you can see any any of Tokyo. You're just going to be in an Olympic bubble, and then you're home. Yeah, I don't know how I would have got on with uh, the lack of or with providing an itinerary when I was in Rio a few years ago. But the the IOC at the moment, or the local organisers at the moment, are working off a series of contingencies. So I think is it five contingencies? I don't have the notes in front of me. Um, it's going to be either one of those five, or it's going to be kind of a little from column A, etc. But yeah, it, it is looking like in the next few days we'll have confirmation that there aren't going to be overseas fans and there will certainly be some kind of wave system um, for athletes just to maintain some kind of control of, over the of the bubble um, at, the, at the Olympic Village, which, you know, is normally uh, a, quite a vibrant place and people coming early and sticking around, supporting fellow athletes from their own teams and, uh, and other, uh, other countries as well. As you say, I think on the media side, both for cities and for sports, I think the, the kind of the freedom of the, the journalists who are covering the event and the media who are covering the event, small outside broadcast teams just picking up stories from across the city, painting, painting a bit of the life of the city, uh, picking up some of the smaller stories that you wouldn't have expected going into a games. Just that sense of improvisation. It's, it's a strange thing when you're at an Olympics, it's, the, the the sense of there's there's kind of, you're almost overwhelmed by the number of stories that are going on all at once and I guess taking that away it's going to homogenize the experience uh, for for fans not just in Tokyo but around the world yeah some of the best stories are are off diary they're, it's a very um, they're unpredictable you know, you look back at from a new sports news side there were some classics at Rio famously there was the Ryan Lochte swimming incident where uh, he he claimed to have been the victim. Yeah. Maybe, maybe these aren't the classics that the IOC <laughs> would have wanted to broadcast. From a media point of view. I mean, it, there, there are really good stories to be had. And also, it's the other, from a more positive point of view, is the access to, to the individuals performing. You know, you're, you're bumping into Usain Bolt and McDonald's or whatever it is. You know, there is the um, reporting from the bubble and having access to, 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 to these uh, personalities. Who, let's be honest, a lot of these guys... And, and, and women, they're, they're not personalities outside of the Olympics. There's two, three weeks for these these guys to shine. Um, and a lot of that, and the future income, the future notoriety comes from the, the, the media presence there as well, I would have thought, you know. But I think it's going to be really controlled. And I, I suppose given that the virus is, is still out there, like to be still out there and the social distancing requirements, I, I think the, the the ability to to kind of do something as simple as, um, have a one-to-one or, or interview an athlete it's going to be severely curtailed as well um like I said it just seems to be a case of let, let let's get this thing um done one of the one of the things that a lot of people might not be that disappointed about is uh Tokyo and the um, Japanese government have said to the IOC can you try and curb the number of VIPs that you you send over this time and the the, the, the sort of <laughs> the VIP brigade has come in for uh, quite a bit of stick at previous Olympic. Uh, um, you know the fat cats who roll into various events and and wind and dine and then roll out, um, not adding anything particular to the experience for for, for anyone. Um, they, they've 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 have found themselves um, uh, under the spotlight now and again. And I think the um, Tokyo have asked, um, could you could you maybe curtail that as well? So. 
like I said, I don't think many people will be disappointed. And if it, it could maybe uh, be part of a trend, there has been excess at these Olympics so, and major sporting events, um, which I guess um, the public at large have been frustrated and upset about. And it kind of hurts the um, the IOC's reputation and the reputation of organisations like like FIFA have been damaged by by some of the excesses of their own members. So perhaps having some of them not there might might do them a, a, a positive service, albeit in trying circumstances. Yeah. What we won't know officially probably until a little bit closer to the time, but what we're hoping will be the case is that there will at least be some local fans uh, who'll be able to hang on to those tickets that they've already bought um, and that there will be a bit of atmosphere around the event. So they won't be completely sealed. But of course, travel is a very different thing. Um, you're still waiting, Tarek, on the uh, whether your accreditation is going to be honoured. But um, we'll, we'll find that out, I, I guess, a little bit closer to the time as well. But in the absence of you um, sharing some Chicken McNuggets with Usain Bolt, it may be something that uh, we see athletes encouraged to do a little bit more. I mean, it's it's a very complicated picture with the Olympic Games um, and, and the amount of freedom that, that athletes are able to to exert in, in sharing their own experience. It's certainly going to be a conversation over the next few years, um, whether we continue to see a kind of liberalisation of, of Rule 40 around promotion and, and all that type of stuff. But we do know really the course of the Olympic Games is, as a as an event for the next 10 years, because while there's so much uncertainty around Tokyo 2020 in 2021, we have all but one, we think now of the Olympic Games hosts up to 2032, um, after preference was stated for an Australian host in 2032. Um, and obviously that was discussed further last week at the IOC session. What do you think that will do for the IOC or for the Olympic movement? The fact that you have that element of it, the kind of bidding and uh, and campaigning element taken out of the picture for, for the next few years. Will, will we see a shift a bit more to some of the more strategic questions of how the Olympics are delivered? Yeah, it's an interesting one, this. Um, it's, there's a case for and against it. I think the process that ended with Brisbane being the kind of uh, picked, uh, preferential pick, for, for the Olympics, all being you know, all being well, this is going to be uh, a case of Brisbane twenty thirty two. You know, it's got to go seriously wrong for for, for that not to happen, um, and that gives them a degree of certainty, and it also gives them certainty um, of of things beyond the Olympics and certain hosts. And you look at Beijing, for example, that comes with a lot of baggage. You're going to have the human rights stuff, general um, concerns over China, etc. With with a host like Brisbane, it's it's quite easy um, to to manage that process. It's going to be, and also the professional capacity of the Australians in house to to put um, a team together to to build the stage for for the Brisbane twenty thirty two Olympics is perhaps the easiest country in the world to do it, given they have such a massive um, group of sports professionals there. Uh, and like you say, that does give them all of this time. And we heard some of this at the IOC session. We had um, the end of Agenda 2020, um, uh, you know, a very dull name for for these massive reforms that Thomas Bach wants to kind of insulate, future-proof the, the IOC and the Olympic movement with. Um, and that's now turned into um, equally um, 
Speaks excitingly titled Olympic Agenda 2020 plus five. So until 2025. And they talked about some of these ideas um, and it's trying to foster youth, keep it relevant, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the thing that I'm concerned about is this small group of people that come up with these decisions and these ideas it seems to be a group of old geezers, sorry to old geezers, but it is this group of old people who are trying to come up with ideas to make this um, institution relevant to young people, some who aren't even born yet, probably, right? So way into the future. Um, and, and we're talking about things like esports and and, and, and other, other elements to, um, to, to the process. And I guess this bidding element being taken out gives them time to do that but it also i think unsettles a lot of people that it kind of crystallizes a lot of power in in a handful of people to have such a big influence on 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 something as significant as the olympic games you know we're talking about billions and billions of dollars worth of investment wherever this thing goes um and it has really frustrated um people who are thinking about it countries and cities who are thinking about it Doha and Qatar being one, um, Germany, the government um, have spoken out against what they described as quite a murky process. And I think that that is probably quite accurate, especially when it comes to Brisbane, um, given that this is a Games in Australia. The IOC's very influential um, vice president, John Coates, is has been the head of the Australian Olympic Committee for 30 years and he was also um, the man tasked with um, creating a template for this this process that ended with Brisbane, his 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 candidate, his his city, being picked for 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 the twenty thirty two Olympics. And again, that that does leave um, some questions for the IOC to answer. And these are questions that, that they're often not very comfortable answering. I suppose what it does as well is for the IOC membership, as tends to be the case with these bigger federations i'd say fifa for a time was uh was similar but um obviously that that decision making process has oscillated between uh the executive board and, and the membership in terms of who, who hosts the world cup but you know the destination of the games making that decision put a lot of power in the hands of the members and you wonder what their role is going to be over the next 12 years do they have a uh, a task now in in shaping the way that the games develops over that period does actually quite a lot of uh, influence now reside with the local organizing committees because we know for example that they have quite a lot of discretion when it comes to which sports they introduce and and Paris has already made a couple of quite bold choices in in introducing stuff like breaking that will do quite a lot in determining what an Olympic Games looks like going deeper into the 21st century you know and, and as you say it's quite a lot of decision making power has been consolidate with the IOC executive because they have tried to remove some of the murkiness around the way that bidding races used to be viewed and um and and perhaps mastering that balance is 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 something that they they haven't quite demonstrated yet but how will this change the the IOC as an organization will the membership have a role will will other parts of the olympic movement come to the fore is there an opportunity particularly as they're trying to retain that relevance for for athlete bodies to to become more you know, move closer to the centre of things in the next few years? It's an interesting question. I think um, the, the committee um, was about 100 members. Those, those guys seem largely irrelevant unless 
they're individually placed on some of those decision-making committees. So, so a few of those who are on those will 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 have will have um, a degree of influence. I think um, a lot more power is within uh, the the um, the executive, the the workers, the the professionals at the IOC, which might not be entirely a, a bad thing, given that they are they are the experts in in their field. But yeah, I think. But I think it, a lot of it is in the shape of the leader. Depends on how much um, Thomas Bach is willing to to trust. Um, uh, you, you mentioned athletes. If you want a greater athlete voice, you, you wonder with him whether he wants a greater athlete voice, really, or or for show. Because there are a lot of athlete outsiders. That's what I've noticed. There's been a trend in these movements outside of, um, say, the IOC um, Athlete Commission or the Wilder Athlete Commission or anything like that, um, outside of these these defined positions, which a lot of people are seeing are largely controlled by, say, the IOC or, or, or the Wilder, and people can't really speak up and speak freely. There's a lot more criticism, a, a lot more um, sharp comment from, from voices outside. Um, athletes who are still competing and those who are retired relevant names to people around the world who might be seen as too risky to be within um, the the IOC framework. I mean, I couldn't help but notice the, the, among the people falling over themselves to um, loud um, Thomas Bach on his re-election unopposed the other day was Danka Bartikova, the head of the IOC's internal athlete commission. And she was, she was just couldn't stop telling what a great, honor it was for her to be the first to congratulate him what a great job he's been doing but then you, you you talk to athletes outside of that and they'll be shaking their head and they were and think hang on you're not representing our view because we've got a lot of um concerns that aren't being addressed so again in terms of what you're asking in terms of the future are the athletes going to have a greater say it depends on whether thomas bark wants them to and it depends on which athletes he's willing to listen to but it will be interesting, and I think, as I said earlier, it will almost be an upshot of perhaps a a more standardised media experience this time to see the value that athletes bring to the table as as kind of ambassadors for the games commercially as well as um, as well as performing in the arena. The next year, I mean, the, the, a lot of the conversation around Tokyo and the uncertainty around what kind of event we're going to see there has had the effect of, of not quite kicking down the track, but it's it, it's obscured the debate that's going on around Beijing 2022, a year from now, which is going to get louder. It's really unusual that we have two Olympic Games this... Well, it's unique that we have two Olympic Games this close together in the kind of modern biennial era. But perhaps if, if the year had been clear for conversations about Beijing, the, the political dimension of it might have been... Uh, a little bit more animated it would have maybe come to the fore a little bit more but that is something that that's that's going to be the big olympic story particularly once uh once the tokyo games are finished for sure uh and we're kind of seeing it a bit like you say uh in in, in recent months and this kind of all over the human rights but there's three prongs to this human rights issue and i guess in one way the chinese must be glad that the Tokyo Olympics have been delayed to such an extent that the build-up will be short. The, you remember, the, recall the, the build-up to 
to, to the 2008 um, Beijing Olympics. There was a year of this, at least a year of um, out- outcry. But in many ways, China has sort of backslid further on human rights. Things seem to be worse um, as the country seems to be flexing its muscles as, as, a, as an economic power that the world can't do without. It's kind of calling um, our bluff in many ways. Uh, but the issues are really um, more severe. The, the plight of the, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang in the far west of China, more than a million people um, um, detained, um, families separated, forced internment. Um, the American government has described that as a genocide. So you're taking the Olympics to um, a place where there is an active genocide going on. That seems... Um, um, just seems awful to think that 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 they're going to have a sporting event at the same time as the other side of the country. This is happening, and there's nothing anyone's going to do about it. There's been talks of boycotts, etc., but I can't see that happening. Then we've got the issue issues about the um, um, status of Hong Kong, the treatment of the pro democracy campaigners there, and then the long-standing um, issue um, surrounding Tibet. That 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 is a feels almost like a longer list than there was in two thousand and eight. And I remember one of the, the pivotal figures around 2008, again, we've mentioned him, was John Coates. And he said, look, this is actually a good thing. It will allow countries like China to maybe change for the better, thanks to hosting these events. I think history has proven him wrong in, in, on that score. But but the economic might and the importance of, of, of Beijing and, and China to, to the Olympic movement is quite significant as well. So the IOC finds itself in a in a tricky place, not wanting to condemn, um, said a genocide, while at the same time kowtowing to this organisation, which is you know it took it out of a jam. If you remember, they only had two potential hosts for for these twenty twenty two Olympics, Kazakhstan um, and 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 China. So it wasn't um, it was an invidious choice, and they've ended up perhaps the safer of the two in Beijing. Um, but yeah, I, I expect the, the the howls of resentment to, to get louder as, as this approaches. Yeah, and I think as well when those games were awarded, what would have been in the in the middle of the last decade, there was less consternation. I mean, the, the, there had not been any reporting about the the, the mistreatment of, of the Uyghur population, but or certainly not to this extent. And I think a lot of the consternation was around the suitability of Beijing as a as a winter host, and the fact that this felt like a, a kind of convenient maneuver because people couldn't see Almaty as a as a, an Olympic Games host. Um, Beijing had the infrastructure and the resources, if not the snow, um, and so it was uh, it, it was pressed into service. But yeah, this is something where. Certainly, it's been overtaken by events in a quite different way from from Tokyo, but it, it, it has put the IOC in a position where it's defending things that it's going to be very difficult to defend. Put it that way, and it will. We can expect that there's not going to be any change to Beijing's hosting status, and we can expect that there's going to be more charm offensives, I guess, from from Beijing in the, in the nature of the the Sinovac uh, vaccine offer that was made in the last few days but i think as well it now creates the kind of sphere of of political debate that sports events hosts tend not to like and that will be governments from other parts of the world um using this as a uh as, as a platform to 
to to discuss some of the relationships that they have with China, and then you know a lot of them are in a similar bind because of, as you say, the the economic importance um, of that country, in spite of the kind of uh, antipathy that you know its government is beginning to have uh, with counterparts in in other nations. You're listening to the Sports Pro Podcast. Okay, well, that is going to become a, a bigger and bigger conversation as the year wears on. But let's let's move on to events that are going on in 2021 that were meant to be happening in 2020. And uh, the UEFA Euro 2020 is, is the biggest of those. We've been talking about the stability of the Olympic model and, and the idea that they know where they're going to be over the course of the next 10 years. Uh, UEFA have a slightly less strong idea of where they're going to be over the next 16 weeks because the the status of different coronavirus restrictions is going to vary from from country to country travel which was going to be kind of the the, the great selling point of euro 2020 when when it was devised um what nearly 10 years ago now um partly as a way out of a hosting bind in itself but also as this kind of great celebration of almost like not just continental football but like the easy jet generation and uh, Europeans crisscrossing the map. Well, that doesn't seem like the most sensible thing in the world this year. So, I mean, do we, do we expect the official line from UEFA at the moment is that the 12 cities who were signed up as of March the 1st are still going to be the 12 cities who host um, in the middle of June. But are we expecting that to be the case or will there be a bit of a pairing back of ambitions there? I think they will struggle to have 12 cities hosting the the euros in 2021 now because from what i understand uh, internally they've been trying to get guarantees from from each of these cities like minimum guarantees that they can work with moving forward knowing that there is an ongoing pandemic etc cetera, etc cetera. they're having trouble with three of these um bilbao spanish host glasgow scotland and dublin in ireland they have a deadline of around um, early April, mid-April to, to, to draw a line under this and, and have a plan moving forward. So I think we will still see multiple host cities in uh, multiple countries, as was envisaged way back in 2012. I think in after the um, final of Euro 2012 by Michel Platini in Kiev, to where he, I think he first announced that, um, and Seferin, uh, Alexander Seferin, the current UEFA president, inherited this. Um, and it's never been easy, even before the pandemic. It's not been an easy thing to organise. You've got to harmonise loads of different um, elements here to, to create a whole. So it was never easy. And then the pandemic struck. So they've given these three cities a few weeks to give them certain guarantees that they require. I think some of them might be around access to for fans and, 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 and elements like that. However, I don't think they're going to be able to do this. Uh, I believe that the excess games, the excess capacity that will create, will um, see them move to England. We see that um, England is already hosting um, a group stage and um, semi-finals and a final. So it's almost a quasi-host country for the event anyway. I think UEFA wouldn't mind these games going to England. It's always seen England as um, kind of a uh, a bit of a money pot. UEFA always does well out of things happening in England financially. And um, the government, Boris Johnson's government, has given them support. Well, Wembley was the host of 
the Champions League final, was it two years out of three, um, 2011 and, and 2013, and certainly London becoming kind of the lead host for this Euro was something that happened what was it, about three or four years ago um, when one of the other host cities dropped out. And I don't think there was that much protest from UEFA at that time about that idea. Um, so it, it would only really, I suppose, confirm that status of uh, of England as as being more equal than the others in in staging this tournament. I mean, it's it's been a strange one, hasn't it, for football? Because you see, relative to something like the Olympics, how agile tournament organisers can be in putting stuff together. We saw the reconstituted Champions League over last summer where they were able to take the whole thing to, to Portugal for a week. But equally, we've seen the complications that arise from having the Champions League this season and, and the Europa League and international friendlies and, and qualifiers in different countries. And um, travel is the primary complication there. And we've had yeah, Arsenal playing back-to-back home games in uh, Athens, which was a new one, <laughs> an away game in, uh, in Italy. Uh, and, and other teams pressed into into similar situations because of uh, because of COVID restrictions, and obviously that is the kind of thing that UEFA are going to want to keep a, a million miles away from from the tournament this summer. Absolutely, but you also mentioned how agile they've been, so it, sh- it shows they can turn on a sixpence as well. Obviously, they'd rather not, and it depends again. Um, it's one of those known unknowns, isn't it? The um, the status of the virus as well, but it, it's shown that they can they can. Um, make and, and mend as, as things go on. But they, they obviously you want you want that certainty. I think having as much of it as possible in, in England offers them offers them that. Um, but I don't again the, the issue is going to be over um, foreign travel as well. So those those games where you're going to have supporters, I, you might be it might be a case of only people from the, the countries um, that are hosting that, that particular game. So if there is a, a game in Rome, maybe only Italians or people in situ in, in Italy can go to those games, um, depending on the restrictions each country has on travel at the time. Because I think I think it's too soon to think that um, global travel restrictions will have um, eased to the point that we are travelling around again. And then we're also going to have a question of uh, stadium capacity. Um, different different cities are going to have, or different governments are going to have different maximum capacities for for their sporting events and other outdoor events so it'll be a moving moving feast yeah and if you think that there's 24 teams if four or five of those were excluded from certain countries travel uh green lists by june and july does that put their teams at a disadvantage if every other team can have away support and they can't um you know you you do feel like there's probably going to be some kind of blanket ruling on this. We're going to we're going to have much firmer standards. Even though to this point, there's there's been a degree of improvisation and, and making do and mending. Uh, we'll we'll have a much firmer idea. Yeah, perhaps. But I guess there's always going to be with tournaments like this. There's always going to be a degree of um, uh, an advantage for like England, for example. You, they're hosting all the games here. They're going to have a natural advantage in in the tournament, and I guess uh, others will as well. But one of the points you made. Uh, what about the um, Champions League uh, last summer now? They had to play the entire, almost entire knockout stages in in, in Portugal in those in, in the stadiums uh, there, and that that was so successful 
as far as some people at UEFA see it, that they are thinking about this as a potential model in non-pandemic years. We're talking about the um, 2024 and beyond Champions League um, European club competition reforms. And I understand one of, one of the um, items that hasn't been kind of agreed or, or, or solidified, you see the, the Swiss model and um, the, the format, etc. all of this has largely been agreed. But up until now, there are still some whispers that the very senior people there are thinking, hey, we can have um, a finals week, a final fours week, the semifinals and the final in, in one place and have it uh, like a um, Super Bowl week um, and generate all that interest and excitement. Um, they would, of course, lose one very lucrative, two very lucrative games because those semifinals are always uh, two-leg affairs um, and they're, they're some of the most valuable sports property on the planet. But it just goes to show sometimes um, in a crisis um, you have opportunity um, and, and that final eight in, in, in Lisbon was one of those, it seems like. Yeah, I guess they'd be weighing up particularly as, as models change, media models change with the, uh, you know, digitization and the, and the decline of, of the pay TV bundle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it will be what the value, the additional value of having one concentrated event will be to all the attendance stuff like um, sponsorship and hosting rights and, and everything. Just on that topic, because this is where I, I wanted to, to take the conversation just to take us to the exit. But, when we when we did talk about this stuff a year ago, there was lots of chatter about how this might inspire new waves of creativity. This might inspire, you know, it might break down certain taboos about the way sport is organised. Um, it might bring certain organisations closer together, or, uh, or or get people thinking differently about what their interests were. What's your impression been of how that has progressed in the twelve months since? Do you think that because we do now have a bit of a backlog of major events, we're going to have different things running into each other? You know, the two events we talked about this year won't suffer from that particularly, but others will uh, from the the kind of um, the crunch that that we'll get in the next eighteen months. Where do you where do you think that's all gone? Well, yeah, uh, from an ideas perspective, I don't think we've been in a time where there have where there would have been more ideas bubbling up. So. We've also seen a great degree of self-interest behind these ideas, behind those pushing each of these agendas, particularly in football. So we, we look at Premier League. We had in the during the pandemic period, we had Project Big Picture, which um, you may have discussed with your your listeners and your readers um, ad nauseum before, uh, which was a big reform of the Premier League and the English football pyramid as a whole. We've had European Super League talks at a level that. I, for me, is unprecedented, where um, it's been designed in such granular detail that all they, they're they almost at a turnkey point. If they turn away from this UEFA um, expansion model, they've got something else to go to. I've not seen something as, as defined as, as that is right now. Uh, today, as we're recording this, the Belgian League has um, voted to create a uh, a joint league with the Netherlands, should the Netherlands agree, type of regional football. We have had um, the new president of CAF endorse an African Super League uh, being pushed by Gianni Infantino. So it goes on and on and on. We've never been in a point 
where there's been so many ideas. And I think the pandemic, in a way, has accelerated that. Um, fears over the future, fears over the current, trying to preserve each each um, entity, trying to preserve its own status, I guess, in 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 the, in the footballing spectrum. And then and then you guess if you look look wider afield, you know, we talked about the IOC. There seems to be a hurry with other sports as well to 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 to, to try and maybe I wouldn't say momentum is the right word here, but use use this kind of pause, this freeze, this kind of um, real moment of crisis as a time to reflect on the future. What, I, what I'd be interested in is how many of these ideas actually come to fruition. You know, what, as well today, Red Arsene Wenger wants a World Cup of football every two years and a Euro every two years. That's another one. That's all in one week. So, yeah, all of these ideas and each of those individually in the regions that we're talking about, either globally or locally or regionally, will amount to massive upheaval and the biggest change in that particular country, region, tournament that we've seen in generations. And I suppose the other side of this is is power. All of these involve contests between different stakeholders for power, even if we're talking about whether rights holders can engender a bit more agility and how they how they put events together can move a bit more quickly. Well, there will be people within those organizations within those environments who are saying, well, we can do lots of things lots more quickly if we have lots fewer stakeholders uh, with a meaningful say here. Um, If you give us a little bit more decision-making authority, then we can make things happen very, very fast. And, you know, when you think about the money that is around sport now that is um, kind of hovering over as a means of investment to take it into this digitized phase five or 10 years from now, a lot of these conversations are going to be had at, at that level, aren't they? As as well as um, as well as the kind of traditional blazed authorities that that have made decisions in the in the past few decades. Yeah, I think um, it feels like they might become a bit of an endangered species in many ways, given that the the direction of travel we've seen um, a huge interest. Again, this is un, unparalleled as well. I'd say the interest of private equity. Perhaps they see sport as a distressed asset right now, but one with a future. Um, they see perhaps um, higher returns in, in the sports sector than than what they would traditionally have invested in. You know, you look at it, you saw the rugby deal with CVC recently. You got a ton of private equity companies hovering over rights for Italian football, Bundesliga, etc. I mean, that they, they there is a sense that they believe that they will engender a, a greater degree of professionalism, uh, uh, smartness, agility to, to make decisions for, for commercial reasons rather than um, political reasons that it's traditionally have favoured a, a sort of coterie of sporting elite, as it were, you know, moving chess pieces around committee uh, seats, etc., etc. However, there is, I, I can sense, uh, a, a big pushback from the kind of traditional fans of of these sports particularly in football yes these are commercial properties but they're really um also for for a lot of people first and foremost um kind of social enterprises that mean a huge amount to so many people and it seems just hiving them off to the to the highest bidder to let them do whatever they want to do with them and and then um and then kind of decouple them from i guess regulators uh, scares scares people to the point that there might be uh, uh, 
direct action fan groups are coming together in, in ways that I haven't seen before either, pushing back against some of uh, the, the biggest excesses of, of, of the biggest um, teams in terms of um, accumulating power, wealth, and, and trying to move the game away in a direction that suits them and only them. Well, it's going to be fascinating to track all of this over the next uh, next few years, really. Um, but I think we'll leave this part of the conversation there for now. We are going to be speaking just after the break with Daniel Heal, partner and global head of sport at Control Risks. We've been talking a lot about risks and the unexpected in the first part of this podcast. And he is going to be telling us a bit about some of the best practices involved in risk management, some of the central tenets that uh, every sports body and and every company can learn a little bit from, uh, sports attitude to risk and how that's changed during the course of the coronavirus pandemic and some of the big threats to sport and to other industries in 2021 and beyond COVID-19 related and otherwise. That is coming up just after this. Hello, this is Matt Rogan. I've spent my career creating and scaling businesses in sports and entertainment. And now I'm trying to find out how businesses can best make their way through these extraordinary times. So together with SportsPro and with leaders from inside and outside sport, I've created the Playbook series. It's the place to go for agenda-free, pragmatic advice to navigate your organisation through change. Catch up on our library of articles and podcasts and learn more about how our new labs programme can help you succeed. Head to sportspromedia.com slash playbook to find out more. Daniel Heal, partner and global head of sports at Control Risks. Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Great to have you with us. Uh, we're obviously going to be talking about risk assessment and kind of the attitude towards risk among sports bodies, among event organisers and, and promoters. But first of all, why don't we just take the opportunity to introduce Control Risks uh, and some of the work that you do and where you sit in the kind of the rights holder world. Yeah, thanks very much. So Control Risk, we're an independent uh, risk consultancy. We support organisations become more secure, more compliant and more resilient uh, and deal with critical issues or crises as they occur. And over the last 12 months, there's been many, uh, many issues and crises that, that organisations that have uh, that faced. So our, um, our, our clients or who we work for, who we support is across the sports, entertainment and major events um, sector and industry. Uh, ranging from rights holders to individual teams, leagues, investors, sponsors uh, across the board, really. Um, and as alluded to, we, we, we are here to, to support them become more secure, more resilient and more compliant, really understanding risk. And I think more so now over the last 12 months uh, than ever before and, and looking forward to the next 12 months, year, two years, understanding what could impact your organisation, could impact how successful you're going to be is, is never been more important. Yeah, I mean, what? Let, let's take it back 12 months, first of all. What was the understanding of risk like within the sports community going into this pandemic? That's one of the, the questions I, I frequently get asked. And, and we as an organisation don't just work in within sports and entertainment major events. We work cross sectors, whether it be oil and gas, telecommunications and so on. So it's it's a really interesting 
part of our business is, is how we compare and contrast. So we're supporting a lot of organizations at the moment saying, right, actually, how mature is my, my approach to risk? Would that be compliance, wider integrity issues, security risk? How mature am I? How good am I? How resilient am I? Uh, not only to bounce back from COVID and, and, and other issues, but actually survival mode in the next 12 to 24 months. And if you go back 12 months, I think I think sport, it hasn't really sort of walked blindly over the last couple of decades into, into these areas, but there's been a real, a real lacklustre approach. Some organisations are excellent really mature, really forward-looking, forward-thinking approach to risk and understand how that can be a real business enabler uh, and add real competitive advantage to, to them as organisations. But a vast majority of, 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 of slept really, over the decades uh, from a risk perspective. And if you compare some of the, the financials involved in the business of sport to, say, something like financial services, they're worlds apart from a, from a compliance regulatory uh, oversight perspective uh, and, uh, and I don't think it's too far to say the majority of the sports business or rights holders or organisations are about a decade if not more behind other sectors uh, other industries that are the same size the same financial value. Why do you suppose that is? I think it comes from the, the very nature of sport being an amateur or majority sports coming from a, an amateur um uh, approach over the centuries or over the decades uh, and really some organizations haven't grown as their as their business has grown as their sport has grown globally their compliance the regulations around that haven't grown as quickly as they are uh, the sort of the visions of, of sort of the old school tie and blazer uh, of, of a particular board of a uh, board of a particular sport is there and, and that's what gets brought up really quickly um, so I think just the pace of change within sport hasn't kept up and there hasn't been, hasn't been a, a demand by those in charge or those holding the power to give up some of the power and really changing that mindset about it's not you're not losing control, you're not losing power, you're reinforcing your position, you're reinforcing uh, the survivability and resilience of your organisation. So the fact that on the business side of things, it's younger, I guess, as an industry than, uh, than some of the other sectors you, you work in. Yeah, I, I think so. It's, it's definitely younger. And it's, if you take that amateur sort of um, approach to, to on-field, off-field, um, and then take it to the boardroom, take it from a more business perspective, it's, it's never going to, to keep pace. And actually, one of the real drivers we've seen over the last couple of years is that the increase in, in external investment, whether it be PE funds or whatever it may be, coming into sports uh, and really really being shocked in many ways or not investing, which is the worst case scenario, uh, into a particular franchise, organisation or sport itself because of the, the way that that body, that organisation has managed itself over the last few years. Okay, so let's reset the terms of the discussion for a sec. What is a healthy attitude to risk? Obviously, leaving aside the kind of uh, the, the events of the last year, although that shows you what can happen, but, you know, it... it if you are running an organisation, what's what's a healthy way of, of looking at it? I think it's it's, it's quite simple, really, and, it, and it's got to be clear and it's got to, to be concise, a lot of common sense, that really it's about making informed decisions based on data, based on analysis, based on assessment. Because if you're making decisions about where your organisation goes, what's, what markets you want to go into next, where you want to approach and so on, if you're not making those decisions based on accurate data, accurate analysis, then actually you're, you're, you're flying, uh, flying in the dark, really. So 
really it's just about understanding your organization every organization is different and making decisions based on data and fact how has the pandemic changed attitudes towards risk how how did some of the conversations you would have uh, with clients or prospective clients in the sports space how did they evolve over the course of, of 2020 it's been really fascinating actually both in a, in a really positive way and, and less so in in others and I think, as I mentioned just now, is those organisations now that are, are taking risk seriously um, are, are looking at this as, a, as an enabler rather than a stopper or a blocker uh, are those organisations that are going to survive the next 12, 24 months and then go on to thrive. You've got many organisations that are, that are still burying their heads in the sand and, and not really um, uh, accepting what's going on. Yes, they, they're in crisis mode and they're dealing with the pandemic sort of now, but if You've got to separate that crisis mode to, to, to forward thinking and future proofing uh, the business of sport for your for, for their particular organisation. So the conversations have really changed, and um, it's it's always interesting to, to sort of when we're going out there having calls with organisations or clients, and sort of two years ago it had been, oh, thanks very much, yeah, we know about you can show us, it's uh, it's great to chat, but we think we're okay. To, to, to the majority of those conversations now they're folding us rather than the other way around to, to, to how we can support so yeah I mean it's obviously a, a terrible terrible time globally across sectors personal professional lives but I think if you try and take a, a, a number of positives from it um, it's about how do you redefine your approach to risk as an organization and again I'll always come back to you need to survive the last 12 months probably the next 12 months uh, if not longer and then how, how are you are you resilient enough to bounce back to continue making money to getting um, financial commercial terms and deals back on the table whatever it may be um, but yeah the, 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 the conversation has changed uh, which is which is positive I think for the for the sector and the industry as a whole but there are still many many organizations that that aren't really accepting the severity of, of where they're at I mean when you think of the implications of covid it's dramatic and it's it's been disastrous in in a, in a whole host of ways but it's got a different profile i suppose from a lot of risks in that or a lot of things that organizations would prepare for in that it's near enough universal there aren't many countries that haven't been affected by it there aren't many sectors that aren't affected by it there aren't many people who haven't had some part of their behavior modified um as a result of it so it's not localized it's not kind of a, a you know, a short-term flare-up, or uh, in in the way that perhaps a security risk might be, or um, or an environmental catastrophe. Does that change thinking? Does that change modelling? What what kind of effects does does that have on the work that you do? So, I think one of the the key uh, phrases that we're using at the moment is around dynamic risk assessment and uh, and being dynamic and positive in your approach to to to, to risk and risk management like you alluded to, you, you can't plan or, or, or a scenario plan for every eventuality. I mean, you, you just you, you wouldn't be able to survive as a business or, or, or as a sport because you, you continue to be worrying about what's the worst thing that could happen. But being dynamic enough to say, actually, if X, Y, Z were to happen or one, two, three, four, how do we as a business react to that? Um, and understanding how that impacts your, in, your particular individual organisation, you as a person, your teams, your staff, your all your stakeholders is involved in that. If you're not approaching it from a dynamic and positive perspective, again, that you're not going to survive the next 12 or 24 months. So really 
really just being dynamic and, and you do have to take risks and positive risk taking based on data, based on analysis, based on fact is, is a good thing. Um, if you want to succeed at times, you have to make take those risks. But but again, going back to that point of, of flying in the dark or flying blind, if, you, if you're taking those risks and making decisions not based on analysis, facts or data, then actually you're, you're, you're at massive risk. Help us spread the word about the Sports Pro podcast. Subscribe, like and share our content on social. Join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SportsProPod. And if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at sportspromedia.com. The Sports Pro Podcast, we're listening to. So how would you assess the risks to events and to revenues in 2021, given the fact that you still have COVID as an ongoing crisis, but you also need to anticipate other factors as well? Yeah, I think that the fluidity that, that's happening at the moment around the, the pandemic and uh, it being a global issue, not being narrowed down to a, to a country specific or a region uh, in, a, in a whole and, and the, the major sports events that are happening this year, sort of relying on international travel of athletes, players, uh, administrators and so on. It's going to be a really challenging time. Uh, I think the the organising committees, the organisations that are involved in planning and, and running these should take positive signs, I think, from, from what's happening and where we are as, uh, as the world and how we're reacting to the pandemic, but actually being nimble enough and, again, being dynamic enough to, to understand that the, the last-minute changes that, that could happen. Uh, if you look at the, the last couple of weeks here in the UK around the Six Nations with, a, with the France-Scotland game being called off um, because of, 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 a, of a COVID issue, if that were to happen in, in the mid Olympics or mid Euros, actually, how how easy is it for a, for a game or a fixture or, or a particular event to be postponed? A lot more difficult than just one sport in 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 one city or one country. The other key area that we're seeing, and I'm talking more and more to uh, and supporting organisations around traditional risks, sort of pre-COVID risk, and and quite rightly, everyone over the last twelve months has been head down, focused on on COVID. Uh, response and survival uh, over the last 12 months. But those traditional risks haven't gone away. And from a, say, a security risk perspective, you take something like terrorism um, or, or, or local uh, local issues um, uh, around riots or anything like that, that's still there. How, how does an organising committee, how does an organisation still manage and mitigate those traditional risks at a time when COVID is severely impacting how you would normally uh, operate on a, on a day-to-day basis. The other kind of, of risk that we've seen really grow over, not necessarily the last 12 months, but certainly the last six months is around more around the integrity side. So whether that be match, match fixing, match manipulation and so on. So again, those linked risks, traditional risks that are being exploited um, over the last few months, over the last year, really coming to the to, to, to the fore and if those risks and you don't look at look at risk management from a holistic perspective and you you prioritize one over the other or one area over the other which you've got to do to some extent but but you need to look at the the, the whole ecosystem of risk and how it could impact uh, your tournament or your organization yeah i want to get back to the subject of, of some of those longer term risks and maybe some emergent ones as well in just a sec but just staying on on 21 in what ways is the sports industry better set up than other sectors just to take a cross sector view of this 
and in what ways is it uh, does it face kind of unique challenges? You know, where can it be agile, and where is it kind of wedded to very specific ways of doing things that make it harder to mitigate against risk? I think one of the key areas is around the, that disparity of, of, of finances and where the actually sit, and that sort of top one or two percent of whether it be tennis or, or football or whatever it is, whatever sport it is, or whatever tournament it is. There's a big difference between the top and just off the top and and the rest, uh, and that that disparity in in around the financial ecosystem uh, has a real impact on, on on risk itself, and certainly on the integrity integrity side. I think separately, if you look at the cyclical nature of some sporting events and leagues and teams, actually there can be there can be um, areas where they can change um, dates, you can change tournaments, you can change leagues or your approach or your structure to a tournament uh, can, be, can be changed. Where in business really um, that there, there's sort of key targets, key milestones that need to be hit and need to be met in other sectors and industries. So in many ways, sport does have a bit of an advantage in that it's, it, can be, it can be manipulated to, to, to respond and become more resilient. But on the reverse side of that, if you think where does the money come into, into sport, whether it be external investment, sponsor, broadcasters, broadcasting rights and so on, if sport isn't being played and nothing's happening because we can't go out there or fans can't be in the stadium as a revenue stream or matches can't be played or postponed, that obviously has a real impact compared to financial services or, or telco that wouldn't have that direct impact, whereas you and I can can work from home and, and not be massively impacted apart from maybe IT and tech issues. Uh, but apart from that, there's, there's not a major impact to how we're doing our business. So in some ways, being nimble, being able to restructure, being dynamic is, is a real positive and, and, and a good thing for the sports industry. But in other ways, it's, uh, it is being hampered and, and, and brought back quite severely. Let's return to some of those longer term risks. Now, something that Control Risk has, has historically done or certainly done in the last couple of years is kind of profiled uh, a risk map for the year. What was on that for 2021? Yeah, so we, we, we produced and we have done for, I think, about 30 odd years now, sort of our top five risks going into into the next year. And it wasn't just focused purely on, on, on sports and major events, but sort of more global risks. But interesting, a lot of those can and, and will impact uh, uh, the risk going for um, the, the the business of sport going forward, we had climate change in there as is a key risk, uh, and I think it's um, it's really interesting to see how the likes of the IOC and, and FIFA are looking at this and, and making statements around how they, as organisations, um, approach uh, climate change and and other and other risks sort of associated with that. The, another sort of key risk that we looked at globally was sort of uh, international relations taking sort of post-Trump United States uh, into the Biden administration, the Biden era, how the US will export itself globally, in particular relation to, to, to China uh, and other countries and other markets. That was a key area we saw where things could hopefully be positive and go right, but also a key risk of, of being impacted. And it's, a, it's an interesting point, actually, how we, we sometimes live in our own sort of sport bubble sometimes, don't we? And yes, we're, the pandemic has brought us to, to look globally and look bigger. Uh, and we do look globally from through tournaments and, and whatever it may be. But actually, how, how does other business, how does the other risk affecting organisations around the world? So if you take a major sponsor, for instance, if their core business isn't thriving or surviving and thriving, they're not going to, to, to sponsor or be in 
involved in a particular sport or tournament going forward or might delay or might try to renegotiate contract terms. So I think stepping back sometimes out of our industry, out of our sector to look at the bigger global picture from a, from a risk and financial perspective is really important. It's interesting there because we've spent a lot of this conversation talking about the viability of events and risk in those terms. But of course, some of those top line things are going to affect the bottom line. They're going to affect uh, revenue streams. They're going to affect partnerships. They're going to affect you know, some of the longer term relationships that bodies in sport or brands might be hoping to build. Most definitely. Most definitely. And, and not being able to, to look forward sort of three or five years. Again, I come back to one of my previous points around stepping back and yes, you're, you're in crisis mode, you're managing the, the pandemic right now now, but actually, if you're not, how can you plan five years ahead if you have no idea what your next year to two years of revenue, income or, or sponsorship or investment is going to look like? It's, it's a really difficult time and, and a lot of the work we do at Control Risk is around sort of scenario planning of, of looking at if, if this happens, what's the impact and what's the likely fallout and being able to look forward. And again, this isn't looking at a million and one different scenarios because you you'll be sat there all day writing what could go wrong to you as an organization it's it's again positive and dynamic risk assessment risk management looking at how you can how you can survive and thrive and get out of this next 12 months and look forward to the next three five years and beyond to, to be successful and what's the kind of weighting that you apply in that process where you've got something like climate change which is a long-term existential societal risk that affects everybody and then you might have shorter term economic risks you might have regionalized tensions you might have political relationships as, as you discussed that, that play out over a three to five year period how how do you go about modeling all of that yeah there's many there's many ways of, of doing that and sort of being bespoke to the to the organization that we particularly are supporting at that time of, of bringing in that that strategic global top end high level um, areas of risk down to the, to the minute detail. And I think our global footprint of, of sort of 37 offices allows us to, to, to understand what's going on sort of outside the front door of your head office or outside your stadium, as well as that, that, that top tier strategic uh, uh, issues. And the, the weighting is, 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 a, is a complex way. It's, there's many ways of sort of dashboarding or percentages or how, how you as the end user want to read and receive your data uh, and the advice that we give. Um, but really, you can't, you can't ignore one over the other, i.e. short term versus long term. They, they've, got to, they've got to sit uh, hand in glove. But again, if, if an organization is not going to survive the 12 months, the next 12 months, um, and it's not resilient enough, it's not dynamic enough, they're not going to survive the next three to five years. And that might sound, might sound something silly to say, but actually it's uh, you really do need to focus on the now. But if you're not focusing on the now and in 12 months time, you get your head out of the out, out of the ground, you think, wow, we just survived COVID-19, what's next? And you realise you haven't got a business, you haven't got a, a fan base, you haven't got any commercial partners. Um, so it's a real, real balance and mixture of, of short-term survival and, and long-term long-term sort of thriving. Are there any risks that people might not have thought of that, that you would highlight? That's, that's an interesting one, actually. And, and the, the current conversations we're having is, is, is around that, again, trying to step back. And, uh, and yes, we're fighting the, the, the pandemic fire at the moment to, to, on survival mode. But, but, but outside of that, what's the, the associated risks? And we, we talked before about those traditional risks um, still being very much at the play, but 
if if you look, take an example of sort of third party risk. So you're you're organising an event that was meant to happen six months, twelve months ago, or there's been a delay. You've got a third party. I don't know someone that's providing food and beverage or, or providing merchandise that that they've had a business plan. Could be a, a small company, um, local company to to that event that's sort of was had stock that was meant to to sort of be sold six months ago, and they've been they've been sat on that stock with no income the last six or twelve months. How does that change you? That's changed their risk profile massively. Um, as in, what what were they? Be accepting or willing to do from a risk perspective that they weren't going to do or they wouldn't do six months ago but how what's the knock-on effect to to you as the event organizer or that sports team that you've now got a third party whose whose situation has changed massively um, and how could that impact you what's the reputational risk and what's the knock-on risk for you as the event organizer or the team or the league to be involved in that so, so I think that the, the, the key point here is, is yes, definitely survival mode and looking at the risk right in front of your face. But actually, you do need to, to, to have a holistic view and a top down view of what else could impact you, both traditional risk, but those knock on uh, indirect risks from, from the pandemic. Just to finish, Dan, how are, how are organisations in sport going to go about instituting best practice coming out of, of the COVID-19 crisis? And, and to, to put it another way, if somehow you weren't thinking about risk over the last year where would you start what would you what would the first steps be towards approaching this properly so i think if you bring up a good point if you haven't thought about risk over the last 12 months the likelihood of you being involved or around or uh, operating in another 12 months is, is is extremely low i would suggest but i think if if you if it hasn't been at the sort of the priority or your your as an organization concerned about it it's just sitting back and thinking where Am I? Where are we as an organisation? What are what are our external threats? What are our internal threats around survival uh, and then onward? How, how do we become more resilient? So I think the first real step is accepting the position that we are in globally. The things you cannot control um, around new variants, around vaccine rollouts, uh, things like that. Uh, but then, what can you control within that? Um, and, and and having a positive, dynamic approach to risk management and. And again, people have, as I said earlier, people have paid sort of lip service to it within the industry, not everyone, but a large number of, of bodies, organisations and, and individuals, but really just accepting that, that risk management is good for you as an organisation, surviving the next few months next year and then going on to become, uh, to, be, to be extremely successful. So I would say sit down, think, common sense, um, how, do we, how do we get out of where we are now and how do we become stronger and more successful going forward? A lot of that can be done internally with existing teams, with you as people, and and I'm sure like you and I have done with our own personal lives in many ways of, of how, how we've got through the last 12 months, whether it be relationships or children or whatever it may be, is, is looking forward now to say, right, how do, how do we become more successful? How do we become more resilient to ensure that when we do come out of, of, of the next 12 months or longer, that we bounce back stronger and more successful than we were before? And risk management, I really believe, plays an integral and central uh, part in part in that and in, in looking forward. Dan, it's been fascinating. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much. Great to, great to speak to you. Print, digital, events, podcasts, Sports Pro. All right, that'll do it for another Sports Pro podcast. Thank you very much to Daniel Heal for his time there. Thanks again to Tarek Panja. Nice to be with you again, Owen. Look forward to the next time. 
likewise. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back with you again very soon. Bye-bye. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon. 